This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's Thursday, May 11th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca and the New York Times, my hometown newspaper, had a headline today on the front page about Chicago, my sister's hometown. And it said, open-armed Chicago feels the strains of, and I didn't really read the rest. I'm just saying to myself, oh yeah, Chicago, and arms, their guns, their gun slaughter. It wasn't about that. Open-armed Chicago feels the strains of a migrant influx. Talking about the city of broad shoulders, having open arms and wanting to welcome the migrants, but not having the capacity to do so. But the reason that I couldn't even get past the first few words of the headline with a sufficient amount of attention is that I'm normally so distracted by the realities on the ground and on the hospital gurneys of Chicago. And specifically in my head was yesterday, there was a new study in the JAMA conducted by the University of Cambridge's Institute of Criminology. And they did a survey, a longitudinal survey of kids who grew up in Chicago. And they found that for instance, among black and Latino participants, 7% of them had been shot by the age of 40. For white participants, it was three. They also found that it was more likely than not that a Chicago resident would have witnessed a shooting. Now, I know the statistics, which are usually presented on a yearly basis, and I usually concentrate on murders, and I know shootings are correlated to murder, obviously. I mean that, though, in less than obvious ways, as shootings go up, murders go up. Last year, there were 2,832 shootings recorded by the Chicago PD. The year before that, 3555. But I keep these in mind as yearly statistics, as a percentage, or sometimes they're expressed on the per 100,000 basis. But human beings don't live in the world on a per 100,000 basis. They live in the world from year to year. So what this study did was they surveyed a cohort of kids. Some were born in 1981. Some were born in 1987. Some were born in 1986. They did them from different eras and they found big differences. So for instance, the difference between a kid born in Chicago in 1981 which means that he would come of age in the early 90s when gun crime was highest. The difference between that kid and the kid born in 1987, which would correlate between a lull in gun crime, was profound. 8% had been shot of those in 1981. Less than 4% had been shot if you were lucky enough to be born in 1987. Seeing a shooting in 1981, if you're 10, just low single digits 
of 10-year-olds born in 1981. So in the year 1991, you ask those kids, they hadn't seen a shooting. By the time they were 20, more than half had. But if you're born in 1996, so 15 years later, which also meant that you came of age or you were a teenager in the 2000 teens, which was a very good period for shootings, you know, very low shootings. It went from, in 96, from the low single digits, not to over half witnessed a shooting to just over 10% witnessing a shooting. This was a very interesting and useful way to think about the toll of shootings, the toll not just of the shot, but the toll of the whole community who has to live with this and witness this time after time. Chicago is an open arm city, and that I mean in the most complimentary way and the most horrific. On the show today, Donald Trump did that CNN town hall, and CNN could not contain him. But first, in the last six months or so, the tech world has told us that large language model AIs have gotten so good They're maybe going to threaten the livelihood of writers, from greeting card writers to screenplay writers. Greeting greeting cards, I believe, screenplays count me suspicious. But my next guest, Stephen Marsh, has written novels, nonfiction, essays, has a PhD in early modern English drama from the University of Toronto. And he says these models aren't really that good just yet. Stephen Marsh should know he's the co-author of a novella along with AI. Stephen Marsh will take us through how he tweaked the computer to come up with a work of art. That's up next. A new novella by Pushkin Industries is titled Death of an Author, and it's written by Aidan Marchine. Only it's not. That's a lie. See, Aidan Marchine is a pseudonym It's a nom de plume or nom de bot, or maybe the author's name could have been Algorithm, because this is a novel written by or with the huge input of AI. Stephen Marsh was the human tweaking the AI to get the effect, which is read in audio form by Eduardo Ballerini. And I have to say, if you didn't know the whole hook of this being machine generated, you might say, oh, this is a pretty good novella. Peggy Furman was a prolific author, having published over 40 books, and was known for her exploration of the role of technology in shaping human spirituality. She was a pioneer of using artificial intelligence to manufacture literary artifacts. Her work has been highly regarded in the literary world, and she was known for her insightful and thought-provoking writing. The fact that such a well-respected figure in the literary community could be the victim of such a senseless act of violence has left many in disbelief. Friends and colleagues have been quick to express their condolences and to pay tribute to Peggy Furman's extraordinary talent and her significant contributions to the literary world. As the investigation continues, the literary community and the public at large are left to grapple with the loss of one of Canada's most talented and innovative writers. Gus Dupin sat in silence staring out at the rolling lake, the surface rippling in the wind. He clicked on Peggy Furman's obituary in the online edition of the Globe and Mail, searching for answers, even though he knew he would find none. What a twist. Interesting characters. The human involved in this creation, Stephen Marsh, joins us once again. Hi, welcome back to The Gist. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? 
when you got this assignment, were you what? Intrigued, appalled, uh, skeptical? No, no. I mean, I was, I was aching for it. I mean, I was like, you know, I've been working with this stuff for a long time. Like I wrote my first algorithmically generated story for Wired in 2017. And then I wrote a 17% computer generated horror story for LA Review of Books in 2020. And then I did another short story called Autotune Love Story, where I created bots using Cohere to create them. So, I mean, the fact that it was like, I mean, you know, I'm a savvy careerist. So I waited about 10 seconds before saying, yes, please. But, uh, but like, yeah, I mean, I was, I, I was aching to do it. This is exactly the kind of lengthier experiment I wanted to try in this stuff. Cause I've been working on it for a while. The theme of the book is intertwined with machine learning and AI. Did you know you would go in that direction from the jump? Yeah. I mean, well, the idea was, uh, let's make an AI generated book. Right. And like, and let's make, let's make an, let's make, let's use our, I mean, originally Jacob came to me and said, can you create an AI author that then will generate this book? And I explained like, that's not really, yeah, that's not really how it works. Like it's not, Mm -hmm. uh, it's like, it requires human control of these technologies to make it meaningful in a way. So that's why we got to like a 95% number, just so I wouldn't have to like, you know, re-input the text to make it to change he said to gus said or whatever like you know like mm-hmm. um like just so that it, that there was sort of some common sense provisions around it but um yeah i mean like the idea was to use ai as far as we could to make something and also to make something um excellent like we weren't going to use it just because like we wanted to make like if we couldn't find a way to make it good we wouldn't use it and we and so because it's very you know you can go to chat gpt right now and say write me a novel it just won't be anything you want to read right so it like it became how like how do we how do we make this happen also a page turner right cuz they're like the other experiments i've done are more lyrical and they're and other you know that other poets have been doing have been more lyrical uh, this needed to be like narratively coherent and driven Right. Like it needed to be Mm -hmm. actually like you want to read it. What was the very first prompt you entered? Oh, well, I mean, I fooled around for so long with a bunch of different tech. Right. Like, and I mean, like I tried character AI and I tried like I've tried like a bunch of different large language models and I had access to a wide variety of them um, just because of these other experiments that I did. So, you know like to actually figure out the system that I ended up using took me two or three weeks really to figure out how to, how to use the tech to write the stuff in a way that made it meaningful. So I'm not sure like a lot of bad prompts. Right. And eventually I had to figure out that like the way you write prompts is you are incredibly specific about what you want and you are incredibly clear about the information that you want imparted. And then, and then the manipulations come after that. So I mean, the first prompts, I don't know, would have been like, write me a paragraph describing uh, in the style of, I mean, at first I was like, I'll just tell ChatGPT to write in the style of, of, of novelists that I admire mm-hmm. and see how far it can get. And um, it was, that didn't work at all. Right. So that I had to, like, I had to, I had to figure out other methods. Was the fact, was it that the, it wasn't in their style or that it was so much in their style that it was just a bad parody? It was like the worst, it, it was the latter. It was like the worst parody. Like if you asked it to write like Raymond Chandler, 
um, it would get give you the worst Raymond Chandler paragraph you ever read in your life that he would be like humiliated to have written. Right. So like <laughs> it, it like it's, you know, and so to get to Raymond Chandler, you have to like ask it to write simple and balance of simple and compound complex sentences with varying syntax, varying grammar, varying sentence length. Then you have to say contains this style uh, and, you know, write it in a particular style that you then define pretty clearly with the following information. So a large prompt, then it creates that, then you put that into pseudo write, which is a stochastic writing instrument that allows you to take text and make it shorter make it long, like add details, um, cut, you know, um, you know, it has a customized button. So you can say, make it more active, make it more conversational, make it more like Ernest Hemingway, make it more like F Scott Fitzgerald, depending mm -hmm. on what you want. And then from there, uh, you, that, that's how the book was, the bulk of the book was built. Cause I also used a program called cohere in a different yeah. way for different sentences. Yeah. So I've played around with cohere and chat GPT sort of trying to reverse engineer some of the effects that you got. And I want to yeah. get there in a second, but the plot of the book. So you're saying you started with paragraphs, paragraph by paragraph descriptions to see what maybe worked, but the overall plot, the structure did you how was that generated or was that iterative did you That's know from the me. beginning how your murder mystery would end <laughs> i've never found a large language model or any artificial intelligence that can produce an adequate plot they're just suck at it they're just yeah. they're just no they're just and like you know like we're not i'm not no one is going to spend the hour and a half listening to this book or reading this book if it's crap like, and I mean, I'm just not interested, right? So like when they create a machine that creates really good plots, I will probably use it, but they don't. So like the, the plot is written by me going for walks, me going skating with my children and thinking things through me taking copious notes, right? So it's not like that, that is the process of copious note taking from me, but you need the thing about this technology is that you need to tell it exactly what to do. Right. Like it's not like it's not if, if, if you um, and then from there, you can find moments where it adds and it brings beauty that you didn't know was there. But it is. And that's the fascinating, the creatively, the fascinating part of it is the balance between control and what how to describe it. This like upsurge of language with that emerges from the technology itself, which is a, a kind of awe inspiring experience. But, you know, mostly you're trying to get it to say stuff that's not crap. Right. And that's yeah. not banal. Right. And, and, and so like you're like, that's absolutely the number one task. I mean, on the, that's also true of the regular writing process. Right. Like the regular writing process is how do I not be cliched? Right. Um, but, you know, so the, that was the process of doing it was um, was very like it was a balance between my control as a creator and allowing the machine to speak. And it, it is absolutely a kind of balance between the two of the things. It sounds like it's more work to do it this way, at least right now. Well, it's like, it is not, it's certainly, you know, people said to me like, oh, I did write it in two months, right? So mm -hmm. like, like that's, I, I mean, that's pretty, like, like it, it was in, it was, it certainly what didn't take me more time to write than I it would have taken me ordinarily to write, like that's for sure. Um, and there were, there were legitimate efficiencies, I would say. I mean, not that that's the point, but you know, the the real point of a work is not necessarily like the production of pages, but like 
whether those pages are worth anything when you produce them, right? Like, like so, and that process, um, you know, it's funny, but like people used to think like, well, when there's computer, when there's word processing, we'll just see much more production of text, right? Like, well, mm-hmm. like, you know, but Charles Dickens was working with a goose quill and he was more productive than, than, you know, any writer alive today, right? So it doesn't, like, it doesn't, I mean, the technology you're dealing with, um, when you're dealing with refined language, like as opposed to formulaic language, um, I think the task that like time on task is not necessarily the key feature of whether it's, it works or not. Right. How were your experiments? Like, did you actually manage to replicate any of my texts by using the tech? No, I'll tell you, I'll tell you how I did it. Um, so first I, I noticed I'll, to get there. I'll ask you a couple questions. I noticed sure. that there was a uh, trope of disgusting food. Uh, the nachos were disgusting. The uh, the sausages pretty much gave him food poisoning. The yeah. salmon the salmon was said to be quote grotesque and savory, like something you'd find in a tidal pool. So, question <laughs> one is: Do you did you hit on that as a trope to come back to as a theme, a leitmotif, or was this computer generated somehow? Well, I found it, it's sort of both because it was like, first of all, I thought the food would make, like, uh, I find when you're reading descriptions of food, I find I just, free, I, I get really into it. Mm-hmm. Like, I, like, I, like that, that's one of the things, unlike, you know, descriptions of weather where you just turn off, your brain turns off. But whenever there's a description of food in a text, you want to read it. Right. It's like, it's like, it's like dialogue. Like people always. Yeah. Yeah. Like Like description of furniture. I don't and description of food. I do. That is a good point. Yeah. Right. Like, so like, like if, if if you, if you're reading so, and that became like, okay, well I can always go back to food. Right. Like, like I know that. um, And then it became like, well, how does it describe food? And the descriptions of food that these, that the machine produced are, as you said, I'm not sure they're all disgusting. They're just aliens. It's like mm-hmm. an alien describing mm-hmm. pasta or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And I found it very fascinating. I mean, I just got fascinated by it. Right. And so, um, and also, you know, I was like, I was given this assignment in January. You're, you've read it and we're talking about it in May, right? Like that's a, not a normal process for a book. So anything that worked, I really had to go for. So, I mean, it, it was a combination. One, it was like, I thought food would be a good subject for a machine to write about. Then I'd learned that the machine did write well about it. So then I returned to it more and more. Do you know what I mean? So it is yeah. actually like a, it's like me feeling the, t- the tech and then using, because the thing about Steven, this tech is you, it does, you trained, you trained the tech and then the tech trained you. Exactly. And yeah. well, I feel like when you're dealing with this tech, there's some things it does very well, incredibly well, better than any human writer could do. And there's some things that's really bad at and like yeah like like any other technology but any other art form you have to respect the limitations and you go into the you you have to you have to drive into the limitations to find out what it what it can do so you know i just went to what it was good at and away from what it was bad at that is an analogy to the uh problems dangers um pitfalls of tech that the people who the humans who program the tech find out what the tech is good at and lean into that more and more and eventually we're in a situation where we're controlled by the strengths of the tech and the things that the tech doesn't do even if we need them like i don't know build housing or feed people that's just abandoned well i you might you might be right i mean i sort of see it more as like like a sonnet 
is very limited, right? There are only yeah. certain things you yeah. can do in a sonnet, but right. that, that, that the limitations are actually the strengths. That's how creativity works in general, yeah. right? The more limitations, the more you're able to be creative. Yeah. And the question is, what is this form and what is its limitations? And what, that, well, that's, a, I mean, what you're saying is like the creativity here is like, where, where does this lead to? What can it, you know, if you're doing a sonnet, you don't want to, there's certain things it can't do, but that doesn't mean that you can't find what's real in that form. And mm. similarly with this stuff, like there's some things, it's not good at plot. I mean, it just, it just isn't. It'll generate a cliched plot. My son does this. He says, generate, generate a sitcom and, or generate a uh, story based on people who were in an alternative universe and got sucked in during a college football game. It will give you some version of that that could air on the CW, but not a good version. Right. I mean, you know, like it is, I was sort of saying the other day, I was like, you know, the, this WGA strike where they're fighting about AI, it's like, Guys, like, you know, if you think you're an executive and you're going to go to this machine and push a button and it's going to produce like John Wick 5. Yeah. Well, that's a bad example because John Wick 4 could easily have been written by a machine. Like it's it's uh -huh, like the uh -huh. most derivative piece of screenplay I've ever heard in my life. Like, but like, it, that's not how this works. Right. I agree with you, but I was wondering why the writers would even feel threatened by it based on that. I don't think that. they should. I mean, I, I yeah. mean, I think I like, I just don't think they've ever used it. Like there's absolutely no reason to feel threatened by this. If you're a screenwriter, like none. So, so back to our, uh, grotesque salmon, I use chat GPT, pseudo write and cohere. I did not use those. That's what you used. I didn't use pseudo write. So maybe that's what I oh. needed to use first into chat GPT. I asked it to uh, generate a description of disgusting salmon. And it gave me something that wikipedia would give me uh well first of all i said describes disgusting salmon and it just kind of ignored the disgusting part yeah. smoked salmon is a delicacy that is often enjoyed for breakfast lunch or dinner there is a sentence in there with some people find the flavor of smoked salmon to be too strong while others enjoy it enjoy its rich smoky flavor great so then i got a little more specific tell me about rotten salmon and what is the way that one would describe that in a short phrase? Rotten salmon is a nasty, putrid smell that can't be described. It's sickening and makes your mouth pucker up like you just bit into a lemon. This is all cliched and not useful so far. And then it says, the taste is even worse. It's like eating a rubber tire. Interesting. Maybe that's something to work with. And then I said, all right, generate a three-word description in the style of, I was thinking of uh, something gothic or yeah. uh, arch, Mary Shelley of how rotten sa salmon tastes. And it said, rotten, fishy, and pungent. Terrible. Then I said, generate a three-word description in the style of Hakuri Murakami of how rotten sa salmon tastes. And it says, overripe, salty, bready. And that last one, bready, bready, that was like, that's not bad. I don't know exactly what that means, but maybe that's, as you said, it was uh, savory and grotesque and something you'd find in a tidal pool. Maybe I could work with bready. I don't know. What do you think? Was I doing it wrong? Yeah, you were totally doing it wrong. Because I mean, the first thing you have to say is, <laughs> like, like, well, like, this was what took me two weeks to figure out. Right. Like, it's not like, it's not like I, yeah. it's not like I, uh, like I did, I'm sure I did exactly what you did for like a day. Right. Like, yeah. you know, first of all, you have to say, write a scene in a novel, right? Like write a scene. And then you have to say with simple sentences and complex sentences, then you have to say containing an image, uh, you know, describing the scene, like in a thing with 
you have to be, and I mean, it's like the text to image prompts. The more specific you are, like, for example, the word elegant, like the mm. word elegant and simple, those lead to much better writing every time you're using ChatGPT, mm. right? Then the, the key thing is ChatGPT will produce something much too long, right? Like, so you have to say, write in a couple of sentences or in a series of words, all this stuff. Those eventually became like macros to me. Like it was like, I would just like, move them around and like to, to get the, to get the thing. But like the thing about that's so fascinating about writing this way is that you have to actually know what it is you're doing, which so few people do like to the level of syntax, right. To the level of grammar, like vary the length of sentences in a paragraph in dialogue. Like, you know, you have, you have to tell it to do that or it won't do it. So it seems that someone who is not himself or herself, a good writer would not be good at writing with chat GPT or any of the programs. Correct. The reason this book is good is me. Like, like, <laughs> like lots, I mean, honestly, like we're, this is serious. So like, I'm going to put a, put aside humility and all that stuff, but like my training in language and my training, the training I had is a PhD where they made me learn you know, they made me read every major literary style from 900 AD on. That's what permitted me to use this tech to get to what the results are, right? And like, like rather, th like it, the process of writing this book is not um, intellectually easier than just writing something. It's what it is, is it is a different process. I mean, as I, I use the metaphor of hip hop, I mean, as it is obviously just an analogy, but in the same way that in hip hop, you don't really need to know how to play a guitar, but you do need to have a complete encyclopedic knowledge of beats and hooks and samples. And, you know, you meet these guys like, you know, Q-Tip who know like literally every phrase of african-american music that's ever been composed right like that the people who know eventually are going to turn this into the art form that it's destined to become are going to have that yeah it's not going to be like oh any dummy can write a novel anymore i mean that's just not that that's just not how this is going to work the name of the novella is death of an author the listed author is aiden marsheen but playing Siegfried and Roy to that particular tiger is Stephen Marsh, who trained the AI to generate this novella available from Pushkin. Stephen, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. And oh, for Pesca Plus listeners, in your feed right now is the extended interview with Stephen Marsh. We get into more applications for AI, including a discussion of why AI can't tell a joke. Go to subscribe.mikepesca.com to get an ad-free version of The Gist, which includes extended interviews with the, you know, tight and to-the-point interviews that you get in the normal show, but you just can't luxuriate in them as one might an extended Pesca Plus interview. And now the spiel. Donald Trump was on CNN last night, and Caitlin Collins could not stop him. That was a rigged election, and it's a shame that we had to go through it. It's very bad for our country. All over the world, they looked at it, and uh, they saw exactly what everyone else saw. You look, even if you just look recently, with the 51 intelligence agents, that made a 16-point difference. Uh, if you look at the but FBI, if you look at the FBI and uh, Twitter, uh, they call it Twitter files, made a big difference. Well, she tried. The CNN anchor presided over the town hall, but 
in the end, eventually, well, she did butt in kind of successfully. You and your supporters lost more than 60 court cases on the election. It's been nearly two and a half years. Can you publicly acknowledge that you did lose the 2020 election? Let me, let me just go on. And go on, he did, disregarding whatever obstacles Collins, CNN, and reality could provide. And that's how CNN lost this town hall to Trump, though it didn't have to be that way. Yesterday, I said, of course, it was proper to interview a president. Caitlin Collins was the questioner. He was her interlocutor. But no, that wasn't actually the dynamic. He was the showman. The audience, so important, that role of the audience, the audience became the de facto judge and Collins stood in as the foil. She did try, but the crowd changed the entire dynamic. It was a lustily cheering supportive crowd, or enough so to give the impression that Trump's lies were truths and his evasions were clever bits of repartee. CNN said the crowd was Republicans and undecideds. It should have been all undecideds, and they should have been instructed to stay quiet. Else, well, we saw what happened. It became a seeming rout of CNN's journalistic imperatives. Chris Lick, the chief of CNN, told his staff in a meeting this morning that Collins turned in, quote, a masterful performance, but he acknowledged, quote, We all know covering Donald Trump is messy and tricky, and it will continue to be messy and tricky. While we all may have been uncomfortable hearing people clapping, that was also an important part of the story, Lick said, because the people in that audience represent a large swath of America, and the mistake the media made in the past is ignoring that those people exist. No, acknowledging they exist is different from letting them provide the soundtrack. All programming is for people who exist, It acknowledges the audience exists. That's different from literally inviting them on the stage and allowing them to laugh at, say, nasty dismissals of a woman who just won a sexual assault verdict against the former president. As an editorial choice, laughing at that is not up to CNN standards. There are two descriptors, one from an academic and one from an essayist that apply. The University of Chicago professor... Daniel Borstein wrote about pseudo-events. And the sum total of this town hall, which wasn't a town and not held in a hall, certainly was a pseudo-event. George S. Trow in The New Yorker wrote an essay, In the Context of No Context. And last night's event certainly qualified. CNN, the brass there, may have heard Collins frequently disagreeing with Trump and challenging him on facts. That happened also. But the context of the event was not the next day's story or a transcript of whose facts were right. It was in the moment. If Donald Trump seemed to own and dominate the stage in the instant, or if Collins and say something like truth or journalism did. And as we watch the truck plow through Collins's very fair questions, we know the answer. There he was, Brooding, lumpen, massive, her, a slender reed of sensibility, all in white, like an image from a Courier and Ives cartoon. There, the threatening, scowling monster. Here, the figure said to represent virtue. I thought of manifest destiny ensconced in flowing silken garments leading the way. But in that picture of manifest destiny, she is oriented in the same direction as all the smaller pioneers that she's meant to lead. On this stage, Trump had gravity. She had facts. What are facts in the context of no context? Where Trump can cite as an unfair ruling from the courts that this fact was excluded 
at his trial. Her dog or her cat was named Vagina. A cat named Vagina. Collins let it pass. That was probably wise. There was so much to try to rebut. You can't point to everything. But really, a woman can't be sexually assaulted if you don't like her cat's name. That's what gave you an unfair trial, the name of her cat. Mr. President, you've repeatedly said, when you win at trial, justice was served. Cue quotes, cue visuals on the screen showing pastimes that Trump celebrated verdicts. But when you lose, it's rigged. You say it's unfair. So if someone is worried, well, if we nominate Donald Trump again, he loses. Won't he once more unleash violent forces? I mean, you just said, Mr. President, that you're inclined to pardon the January 6th rioters. We could play that back if you like. My question to you is, will you pardon the January 6th rioters who were convicted of federal offenses? I am inclined to pardon many of them. You further said right here when asked if you'd pardon the Proud Boys, I don't know, I haven't looked into that. So you're incurious about the white nationalists convicted of conspiring to overthrow the government once. You haven't looked into them, but you know the names of individual pets of a woman a jury found that you sexually assaulted. So let me ask you, why wouldn't anyone who's afraid of a revolution be confident we won't have a revolution if you lose? Maybe the revolution will be conducted by the same individuals that you'll say you will pardon. That's scary. Isn't that a sign of a sore loser? It doesn't have to be that one specific lie or outrageous claim, but there has to be a strategy of which of the claims you go after. There is a thought that you should tape delay any interviews with a guy like Trump so that you can fact check them afterwards, as if the institution of the fact check is an effective vaccine against this nonsense. Now, the strategy has to be to focus on one egregious lie. You know the ones he's going to say. He says them all the time. And don't let it go. Make him issue more and more outrageous lies in the defense of his original outrageous lie and push back and push back and push back some more. And there can't be a fawning audience there. If you provide sufficient pushback within the context of no context, you win. Here's a good one. Pardoning the rioters. He just said he didn't look into the Proud Boys. So we have to realize that even Republicans are really turned off by what they saw on January 6th. And if they don't necessarily blame Trump for it, they do believe that the rioters should be punished. So you could really hone in on all the losses he suffered with his election denial, which is another really unpopular stance, even among Republican voters. We saw that in the midterms. Now, I'm not saying you could cite a poll saying, oh, it's not unpopular. 63% of the Republicans surveyed by CNN recently said Joe Biden didn't win legitimately. Yes, I know Republicans will say that to a pollster, but they'll also say, well, I know you can't prove it. I just suspect it's true. But when I say it's an unpopular opinion, it's the kind of opinion that Republicans have, but they're not proud of, they don't want to vote on. I think they kind of know that they're full of shit when they say that. It doesn't make them feel good. So you hit on that. You pound on that. Republicans don't want Trump to keep talking about this stolen election, so make Trump talk about it. He can't stop talking about it. Mr. Trump, you lost more than 60 court cases. That was a rigged election. Well, what about the judges you lost before who you yourself appointed? And then you could list them. Circuit Court Judge Stefanos Bibas 
appointed by you in 2017, said, quote, voters, not lawyers, choose the president. You appointed him. Was he corrupt? Or this one, your losing lawsuit, quote, would breed confusion and potentially disenfranchisement that I find no basis in fact or in the law. That's from Judge Stephen D. Grimberg, who you appointed to the bench. Is Stephen Grimberg, is Judge Bebas rigging the system? Didn't you put him there? So wait, are you a victim of the rigged system, but also the guy who appointed the judges who are ringing it against you? Since you failed to get fair judges the first time in office, why should you be given a second shot? What's the proof that you're good at this? If every judge that you yourself appointed ruled against you, explain it, Mr. Trump. And then you know what his answers are going to be. He's going to say deep state. He's going to say you're the lying media. And there are good rebuttals for each of those. You throw it back in his face. They're your own judges. Why are you a sore loser? Or you might not want to say sore loser. Like, will you ever accept defeat? Are you right to be worried? What about someone who's worried? Well, I don't want the House and the Senate ransacked again. That was a terrible, terrible day in U.S. history. So I don't blame Caitlin Collins. I blame management who put her in a, you ready, rigged system, who did not arm her with a strategy. She's talented, but a talented 31-year-old who's been an anchor for eight months. Trump has ties with longer records. So a regrettable job overall. MSNBC's Joe Scarborough made a decent sports analogy. I hope reporters, journalists will look at what happened last night and, and see that as basically a preseason film about, you know, and study it to see what what needs to be avoided moving forward. Yep. And the thing that you worry about isn't that the defensive player blew an assignment or that the quarterback threw a pick. It's what Chris Licht said, quote, I absolutely unequivocally believe America was served very well by what we did last night. I don't know. The coach, the GM, has got to be supportive of his players, but you also want to know that the boss is accurately seeing the playing field. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara knows that the cat named Vagina's full name is Vagina T Fireball. He knows that because he's a good producer of the gist, as is Joel Patterson, an excellent Senior producer, because he was asking, what does the T stand for? Michelle Pesca is COO of Peachfish Productions and in charge of feline procurement for the company. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oom Peru, G Peru, Du Peru, and thanks for listening.